Welcome to episode 69 of The Numbers Game, start of season six. I'm Jason, and as always, I'm joined by Marty. How are you going today, Marty? I'm going well, thanks, Jason. And uh, look, Nick Riley is away, is away for this episode, but we've got something really special in store to kick off the episode. We've got our good friend Tom Boyd joining us. So, uh, yeah, welcome, Tom. What a pleasure, lads. Uh, yeah, thank you for having me. I'm excited to uh, to get into a few topics that obviously I'm passionate about, you're passionate about, and you know, we get to work with a very similar industry, which makes this conversation uh, particularly pertinent, I'll say, at this time of year. 100%. Well, mate, to set the scene a little bit, just for those listening, there may be a couple of numbers game avid fans that aren't too sure exactly what Tom Boyd is or, or what's going on, but to set the scene... 2013 AFL number one draft pick to the Greater Western Sydney Giants. You went on to be the star of the 2016 Grand Final for the Western Bulldogs. You signed a seven-year, I believe, $7 million contract and then retired at the age of 23. So that's quite a story. That's quite a background. And what I wanted to kick off with was something that that I've recently read. I was super uh, excited to get a copy of was, mate, you, you wrote a book called Nowhere to Hide. It's a memoir of football mental health and resilience. I'd love from your words, a bit of an overview of the book and, and why you felt you needed to write it. Well, Jace, if you, you know, because you summed it up so quickly and eloquently, I probably didn't need to write my book if you can boil it down to three or four <laughs> statements like that. Um, mate, look, my, uh, my sort of impetus for writing the book was pretty much came out of fear. You know, COVID hit, I'd moved out of the AFL in May 2019, was looking ahead at basically my sort of North Star being I want to work in the mental health space. I want to make a positive impact in the mental health space. And I was sort of manifesting what that would actually look like from a day-to-day sort of operations point of view. But essentially what happened was people started asking me to talk. And they started asking me to explain what had happened to me, sort of the experience that had led me to being a 23-year-old who gave back $2 million to lead the game that he'd grown up loving. It was an interesting story to people. And so I feel as we do, you know, I followed the, the sort of, the validation and the income and the, you know, the, the request that I had down the speaking path um, was probably going to be, you know, quite a, a prolific speaker in 2020 before all of my work disappeared, um, much like many Australians mm. and, and people around the world. And so um, in, you know, what was some quite difficult circumstances going on, uh, my father was in sort of ill health at the time. Um, you know, we were in a, you know, very old, very dark house here in Albert Park before he renovated it. And, I decided that one, I needed structure and two, that I felt like the story that I just sort of experienced so far in my life wasn't quite over with. And, um, you know, to that structure point of view, I think one of the, the really big challenges you face as a footballer is that from the age of, you know, five when you go to school to the, the last day that you're at a footy club, you're being told what to do, where to be, mm. you know, accountable to, you know, a large sort of plethora of expectations and numbers and metrics and, all of the wonderful things that you have to do to be a professional athlete. But the day that you finish, you kicked off the club email and you left to your own devices. Mm. And so for me, partially, the first iteration of me basically just writing 90,000 words across 2020 was to give me something to do every day. It gave me something that actually gave me a bit of purpose and structure. And um, to the overview of the book, really, it's the it's a, a sort of look behind the lens of um, you know, a young man trying to find his feet in the spotlight. That's exactly where the, the, the title came from. Not that I made it up. I you know, got to the end of writing the book and I said, what do you want to call it? I said, well, you know, you're paying me to write it, not to name it. So um, that, was a, that was an interesting process uh, as a whole thing. But the one thing that I will lastly say, because obviously I always have long-winded answers, Jace, much like you. 
um, is that, you know, uh, the, the real thing that I wanted to get to was the fact that as young people and as people more broadly, we think that, you know, people around us are bulletproof. Mm. We think that the successful business owner or the partner in an accounting firm or that you know, hotshot lawyer or that, or that AFL footballer, that they don't have the same doubts, roller coaster of emotion um, and insecurities that we all have. And I wanted to be really, really transparent about the many, many questions I asked of myself along the way. And perhaps many of the things that I didn't do particularly well, um, but eventually got me to a good place. Powerful stuff, Tom. I, I, I come back to, and I've had my own you know, challenges as well, so I'm interested now being 50 years of age and working through a lot of stuff over the journey. Um, when you think about your early days as a boy, did you see any sort of signs that um, something was a little bit off in regards to where you were expecting to go as opposed to how you were feeling from a from a younger age or did this come on later in life yeah i definitely come on later i mean there's the the sort of age-old story in the in the draft process for me at least is that i probably never really was quite challenged and you know having just shared that you know i'm you know not perfect and i have many flaws and many things that i'm not good at i was pretty bloody good at everything before i sort of got to the afl level you know i was doing really well at school um, you know, I had a really strong social connection with a group of people around me, and I was also going particularly well in the football field. Um, and with those three things combined, it was almost like, you know, what can't I do? What can't I accomplish? And and then where can't I get to? So um, I always had that that mindset. And look, I think in, in part, Marty, that sort of insecurity and doubt is is a healthy thing. You know, being skeptical of your own capabilities in some sense is what drives us to improve. And for me, um, though I was certainly self-critical, um, very self sort of reflective and and certainly had the, the highest expectations for myself beyond what other people wanted out of me, um, it didn't really manifest into a mental health challenge or, or mental illness until far later where I really went down the path of, um, you know, one, isolating myself from others, which is a common um, symptom, um, but two, really buying into this story that I was too unique to understand. Mm. And it's a story with it's the, you know, it's as old as time. And it's something that we all, we all tell each other is that, you know, you, you're an individual, you're unique. And, and of course we are. That's part of what makes humans the most complex and interesting um, creatures on the planet. But at the same time, the emotional journey that we go on over the course of our life is vastly similar. And my sort of, you know, you know, proclamation to myself that I was the most unique individual on earth and that no one could understand my journey really was the barrier for me accessing the support that I needed. So I guess, um, Tom, money, fame, girlfriend, you know, life was pretty good. I think um, there's a bit of a concept that mental health, uh, you know, how could you have mental health issues, I guess? Like, you know, did you feel that? Did you feel a bit of that when you were in your deepest, darkest times going, how, is there something wrong with me or how could I feel this way when I have? all these things? Yeah, oh, 100%. And that, I think that's where the, well, one, the guilt um, and not so, I, I wouldn't say so much I felt shame, um, but certainly felt like, hey, you know, I've got everything. Mm. Everything and then some, Jace, is what I would say. You know, I basically ticked off. Um, you know, I played I played a grand final in front of 99,981 people, kicked the, you know, a goal that's basically been voted one of the most important grand final moments in AFL history. 
probably had six or seven million people watching me play and watching me do that that day. Like the the footprint of um, the AFL is enormous and my ability to sort of be at the pinnacle of that, at least from a team performance point of view, was was historic. Um, and, you know, as you said, got the money, got the fame, got the beautiful girl who's, um, you know, would have been my wife three years ago if COVID hadn't hit, but let's not get into that. Um, yeah, had, had it all. And, and I think for me, the the mechanism that I used, which really came from that guilt around, okay, I've got everything, how can I feel bad? The mechanism I used to deal with that is, is, is one that's, you know, very similar to what most people do. They just go, if I get the outcome that I need at work, if I can just get that next goal or just get that next promotion or become partner or earn this much money, whatever it is, whatever the, the, the composition of your life that you're looking to accomplish, if I can just get to here, everything will fix itself. And I did it in two really significant moments in my life. The first was when I returned back from the Giants on this big deal. I was like, I'm back in Victoria. Surely this is going to fix the homesickness. I'm on this big money. I'm not the third in line now. I'm the first in line for the, my position. The marquee player, life's going to just go skyrocket. And the second time that I did it was following on from the grand final when I remember thinking, and, and look, I, I've heard other ex-players basically say, oh, I was you know, really struggling whilst I was winning a grand final. I, I don't understand that. Um, it was such a positive experience to me and, and certainly not the experience I had. Mm. But what I do remember is this very, very little glimpse that I had sit standing on the MCG when I was walking around looking at the pandemonium around me when I sort of had a second to take it all in. And the question that I sort of posed to myself, or at least the feeling I had was, what are they going to say now? Mm. What could they possibly say to me now that is critical, that is skeptical? Like I've done, ex- I've done something that no one has done for this footy club for 62 years. And of course, I'm saying the I in the, yeah. in the sense that I was a part of a team. And that was the moment when, again, I just figured it would all fix itself. Um, and unfortunately, you know, two weeks later, I was getting a shoulder reconstruction, the most painful surgery that I've ever had in my life amongst the sort of dozen that I've gone under for, um, you know, and that shoulder, I'd basically dissecated 16 to 20 times that, that year, couldn't put a number on it, did twice in the grand final, had my ankle clean out two weeks after that, spent the next sort of four to six weeks in a sling um, and on a crutch. And then had to basically walk back into the football club, having not trained a single time, not run a single time, not touched a football since that grand final. And looking at that mountain again, I just remember this overwhelming sense of dread just sort of setting over me. And that's when things really started to sort of spiral down. On that, Tom, I think, uh, you know, having read the book and, and having a bit of an understanding I think it was on the way, maybe it was that preseason on the way to training, you, you probably suffered, was that the first panic attack? It's hard to remember exactly when the first one was. I, I remember the road that it was on. Um, mm. So I, I live in Albert Park and I used to sort of weave through Plummer Street uh, to get onto the Westgate Bridge. Um, and I just remember coming around the bend and just feeling like I was having a heart attack, like I was about to die. And... Um, you know, the problem with that was that I was driving a, you know, land cruiser that <laughs> was going at 50, 60 Ks an hour. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I just remember for the first time just feeling like you, uh, it was like losing control of my body. Um, right. And, you know, that was a pretty regular occurrence um, for me. In particular, we had a, I had a lot of issues having them in, in team meetings. And, of course, you can't just walk out of a team meeting when, 
you know, you're getting paid a million bucks and this is the job that you're supposed to do and you're reviewing film for you know, probably something that I did wrong. <laughs> um, so, uh, so yeah, and then sort of working through um, with the psychologist some of the techniques I could use just to cope with that sort of stuff. But, yeah, I think that that was, that was a really significant moment where I sort of was like, uh, yeah, it's not in my hands anymore. And I think that's something that I think mental health really probably over the course of the last five years has changed in terms of the conversation. But for many people, I think that the consideration around mental health is, you know, it's it's something that you can just grab and change. And, and to a degree, we all can. Uh, I'm certainly a massive proponent for proactive intervention and making sure that you're looking after yourself 100,000%. But at that point, there are certain moments in our lives where if we do get to that point based on a variety of different circumstances, based on you know, decisions we've made or decisions that have been sort of impacting us that you do, in a sense, lose control of that. And I think that's probably the part that for those who haven't suffered mental illness, that's really difficult to grasp. It's it's a great point. I, I wrote some notes down, Tom, in my own experience, uh, being 35 years of age, having sold a business, you know, worked 24-7, you know, set the goals, accomplished the goals and... I remember being on the couch one morning and I didn't I didn't understand mental health or anything around it at that stage and I couldn't move. I literally could not move out of the couch. I'd never had a more frightening experience in my life and um, and being being male at the time this is probably going back now 15 years um, I just didn't know how to handle it, didn't know where to turn to, and I was just scared. I legitimately had never had an experience like that in my life. So one of the steps I did was do a 10-day Vipassana noble silence because I thought it was probably one of the most frightening things I could ever do to slow my mind up. And um, it it was really interesting going through that process where I had this experience where every thought represented itself in my body. So if, because the first two days you're going nuts because you're going, oh my God, there's nothing going on. I'm just with myself here. So you think you're the best person in the world one minute, then you think you're the worst person in the world. So you're going through all this, you can't sleep. It's it's incredible. And then all of a sudden you start to realise that these thoughts are not necessarily all yours. You, you, you have this real reflection point when you go deeper going, oh, gee, I'm, I'm coming off the parameters of society and what I've been told, and and um, it's really confronting. And I have a friend, Tre- Trevor Hendy, who I got some mentorship with and um, had a really good experience. He goes, you know, are, are you willing to trust yourself to go through this and, um, and, and literally realign yourself from a place of feeling as opposed to thought? Because he goes... If you're looking at it in that way, sometimes your thoughts actually don't mean anything. It's just a response to data. And it was a really, really powerful thing where I felt like for the first time I had a sense of freedom where I could feel the moments in the day as opposed to what you said before, Tom, really resonated with me. What I would do was set goals, but it was almost setting a goal to disassociate myself from the emotions of today in order to get that good feeling in the future. And then that enabled me because, you know, I couldn't really assess my feeling in the moment. Um, it enabled me to take the actions to execute on the goal to get the result. But then when I got the result, the feeling wasn't there. And it was like, so at 35, I'm going, holy crap, 
I'm, I'm, I'm doing this mechanism and I feel like I'm just destroying myself somehow and with no understanding around it. And it's pretty lonely and isolating. Um, but, yeah, sometimes you, <laughs> for me it very much started being kind to myself and going, this is okay, this is like a transitioning, um, a building of awareness into something else and something potentially more. But that might seem positive now, but at the time it was really frightening. And I'm just wondering what were your pivotal moments that you went through to start to reassess where you're at as a person and start to work through the process of finding new ways because, again, society is not built around your system and parameters. Society is built to get certain you know, goals and expectations and, and you, you, you put a lot of things are put on you. So how did you get back to yourself and starting to operate from that sense of self because it's i would think that would be very powerful to hear yeah well i mean thanks for sharing firstly i mean i have heard some of the work that trevor's done and and you're not the first person to mention just how um impactful it it was um the, the way i would like to describe uh you know the let's say the societal pressures that i faced and like take it back 60 years right what did you hear about yourself you heard the kids down the street the people at work and the, mm-hmm. you know in the schoolyard so you know just by way of time and progress and technology in particular the the sort of volume has been turned up um in in not only how loud things are but just how much uh, actual volume of things we hear every single day now you take that as probably the most scrutinized footballer of all time at that stage at the age of 19 and the way i like to describe it is that no matter what you think about yourself no matter what your core ethos is no matter you know no matter what you were grown up to believe in if you hear anything a thousand times a day it begins to echo that's the way i like to describe it and for me that was the really significant challenge because i was turning my i was turning into a person that was you know completely validated and predicated on what other people thought based on the fact that that's what all I heard. I heard it every day. You know, we you know I work with accountants and um, I work in a business now, and uh, you know I I get this <clears throat> this urge to give people feedback in the moment because that's what I've been trained to do since I was a boy. Now I have to temper that because most people aren't capable of dealing with one feedback at all in some senses, but two giving feedback and in both in a positive and negative way in a very quick velocity is something that's it's it's new to people it's not something that is you know necessarily inbuilt into the industries that i work with but in regards to um you know really resetting myself so in 2017 again this is sort of eight months removed from this wonderful day on october 1st 2016 in front of all those people kicking the goal in the you know in the bright lights of the best parts of afl football i hadn't slept in a couple of weeks um, and, you know, I'd been on a cycle of sleeplessness for two and a half years at this stage where essentially I would go into at least most games having not slept for two nights beforehand um, or having slept, you know, very, very small doses up every sort of 15 to 20 minutes, that sort of stuff. So I got to the stage where, you know, quite viscerally my physical body was breaking down to the point where I was getting soft tissue injuries at the age of 22. It had never been an issue for me. I was, um, you know, having issues with sickness, with the ability to concentrate, with the ability to execute small skills that I'd been able to do for, you know, 15 years at this stage. So I'd gone to the point where I really need to make a change. Um, and, you know, I'd gotten to the point where I didn't see a positive future ahead of me. Um, 
And so trying to really work out how to you know, manage that was the most difficult because you know, whether you're a you know, person who's required at a shift at McDonald's or you run your own business or you're an AFL footballer getting paid a whole heap of money, there's responsibilities and there's people that rely on you. And so just turning the tap off on who you are as a person or just you know, not turning up to work is not an option that's easy to accomplish. And that only obviously becomes exacerbated when you're doing that in the public eye. And one of the things that really stopped me from ever seeking help was, what am I going to do? Like, what could I possibly do that's going to change enough of my life experience right now to fix this issue? And I can't possibly take time off because people will scrutinize me. I'm getting paid too much, et cetera, et cetera. All the excuses that we give ourselves to not do what we need to do in the moment. And in the really dark moments, after not sleeping for two weeks, I was due to return back through the BFL side just to get a full game of football because I kept basically not being able to finish games because I was getting these soft tissue injuries. And I just remember thinking, like, I physically can't do that. There's no physical way that I'm getting through a game of footy. Um, so I felt extraordinarily trapped and, you know, I had a thousand negative thoughts going through my head. But thankfully, the one that stuck was... I need help. I need help to, to change this. And this outcome is not going to change unless I do something differently. And, and that's when I first called the club psychologist and started working through that process. But specifically to answer the question, you know, it didn't happen straight away in terms of fixing my overall experience or, or, or where I was at. It began with really being, you know, I suppose uh, taking the time to, to have a bit of a circuit breaker in my life for the first time in a long time. Um, so I took probably two weeks away from the footy club, uh, basically didn't train with the team for that period, then slowly started getting filtered back in. And, and all the while, you know, I still didn't sleep for another three or four weeks after that, that period when I took time off. But eventually got to the stage where the sleep had started to improve. I returned to the BFL um, and then finally had the off-season to go, okay, what do I want my life to look like? One of the things that I looked back on and one of the things I worked with Lisa, my psychologist, about was, you know, when in my life had I been most successful? And it, it wasn't when I was winning a premiership. It was when I had everything working. And that was, you know, probably when I was 18. That was when I was doing well at school. I was doing well in the football field and I was doing well in my social life. And I felt like I was accomplishing the things that I wanted to do. And I was happy and I was healthy. And I was, you know, ambitious and, and excited about the future, which I hadn't felt in some time. And so, you know, I reintroduced university the following year. Um, I was doing, you know, uh, nine hours contact time, six till 9 p.m., three nights a week, whilst doing full-time football, playing games on the weekend, travel, all of that stuff. So that really, really helped um, to provide some balance. But at the end of the day, um, you know, at the end of 2018, uh, so the following year, I injured my back. I um, and went and spoke to the, the club doctor at the time, uh, Gary Zimmerman. And if you ever watch the Bulldogs play, he actually genuinely looks like a walking, talking cartoon. He's got this mustache <laughs> that's like, you know, a foot wide. Um, he's, a, he's a hilarious guy, but a, but a wonderful mentor and an extremely intelligent man. And, and I remember saying to him, Gaz, I'm going to give it up. Like, I, I don't want to play anymore. And he goes, what do you mean? I'm like, are you crazy? <laughs> Um, but no, but what he said was, he goes, I've seen this story play out too many times. Players who are injured in particular and feel like there's no way back or, or whatever it may be, they make these rash life-changing decisions and then they regret it later on. Mm. Get back to playing footy and then make a decision then. 
And for me, that really resonated uh, at the time, thankfully. And since it sort of represents a bigger idea, which is that when you're really happy, sad or angry, like we tend to want to make these knee jerk reactions and you know, large, you know, huge changes in our lives just because we think it's just going to fix everything. But it's never the case. Like you have to wait for rationality to kick back in before you change the direction of your life. And, um, you know, I got to the point in 2019 and I'm sure both of you as, as business owners either now or previously will, will resonate with this. I was going into a, a uni lecture and I'm pretty sure the subject was entrepreneurship. And I, you know, now that I think about it, I'm like, I'm not sure how you teach that. But um, and I'm pretty sure the guy who was teaching it wasn't an entrepreneur, so um, I'm sure it was boring and probably quite irrelevant to, to the outcome of my life. But I was more excited to walk back into that uh, lecture than I had been to walk into the footy club for a long time. And that's when I began the process of retirement and, uh, and giving back all that money. But the, the reason why I bring that up is at the end of the day, I had to be really honest with myself, which, which was I felt like, I was being, you know, intellectually stunted by my football career. Didn't have the space or time to do what I wanted to do. Um, I felt like I was being boiled down to a set of numbers, which only existed in a two-hour period on a Saturday afternoon playing footy. And I felt like I could make a better and bigger impact on the world um, outside of the, the sort of parameters that AFL football gave me. Um, and that's what I wanted to chase. Well, the, And look, it was scary. Um, but it's not a decision that I've ever had to look back on and regret, which is something I'm really sort of thankful for. Let's say you've definitely answered the one question that Nick Riley sent through was, do you have moments of regret that creep into your life uh, about walking away from football or have you squashed them for good? So I think that... Oh, I mean, look, if I could have the two million bucks to pay off the renovation, it'd be nice. <laughs> but, but like, no, I mean, I look at the game, right? And I'm, it's... It's so hard. It is mm. the hardest game. And, like, and I'm not just saying this because I played it. Um, it's, the, it's the most physically demanding game on the, on the earth, on planet earth. There, there's no game that uh, that requires players, say, you know, I'm, when I played footy, I was six foot seven, probably played at a, you know, buck oh five and was running 14 or 15 kilometers a game. Yeah. Not to mention that I had to wrestle with the biggest monsters on earth and all their job Shane, was Shane to Mumford, do was- Shane Mumford, one of them. <laughs> Shame Humphrey, one of them. All of their job was to do was just to annoy me and make me have a bad day. Like that's the, like that's a, it's an extraordinary requirement that, that you have as an AFL footballer. So um, yeah, I don't look back and go, oh, I could have done that, I could have done this. And and unfortunately, one of the things that gets ingrained in you is you look at your teammates and you go, I want them to do bad. If you're not in the team and someone's in your position, you want them to fail. And that is a horrible feeling for someone like me who grew up, you know, supporting people and, you know, my mum's Danish and all she told me for the, you know, best part of two decades was, you know, be polite, be, you know, well-mounted, you know, intellect counts, you know, academia counts, being knowledgeable and interesting counts. None of that counts when Shane Mumford's punching you in the shoulder. I'll give you that tip. So um, I don't have any regrets about leaving and, and I certainly see the challenges that many young players are faced with today and, um, yeah, I'm really thankful for my time in the game. Um, I think it's mm. an experience that I would never, ever not go back and do. Um, I'd do it a thousand times over. But at the same time, it was a chapter in my life that I'm, I'm happy that I closed. And, yeah, the, the one since has been, been fantastic. Yeah, it's, um, not many people get to the point of going, you know, choosing their own real true path and thinking about how much $2 million a year is actually costing them. I mean, it's a, it's, it's a, 
It's an amazing one point. Mil, one was, million dollars a year. Was it one million? million. Yeah. Seven, <laughs> seven mil over. What was it? Seven mil over seven, seven years. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So seven million dollars. You you actually how much was that actually costing you? And to come to that awareness point is incredible. And I remember my um, my wife's mother. Uh, Leslie Best, uh, God rest her soul. Uh, she went to the '54 Premiership, and she would she would say, "Why don't they just let the boy play?" You know, yeah. it's like all that pressure from the media and, like you said, the criticism. But you had people that were really passionate about football. And she got a last flag in, so that was her. You know, that was just a, an amazing moment for her. But she used to say, "Why don't they just let the boy play?" Yeah, the boy yeah, can play, yeah. and it's like, and it's, it's all the rest of it that comes onto it that really causes. Yeah, I'll, and I, it's a really good point, and I think that the, the issue is, is you know, the challenge that I faced um, is that, you know, when you're a number one pick, there's almost already this detracting factor from you as a human being. It's like he's a number one pick. He's not a AFL. You're already an AFL player, but he's also a number one pick, and then you sign this. You know, what was probably the second, well, definitely the second biggest deal in AFL history at the age of 19, um, you're not a human anymore. You are a collection of three or four sort of d- direct items. And that's why <clears throat> you don't get to let the boy play because I'm not a boy anymore. You know, I'm, yeah. not, I'm not 19 trying to figure out my life. Um, I'm all of these other things that, that make up, you know, me as, a, as an individual. And, you know, seeing as that this is called the numbers game, I think it is important to remember there's not a whole heap of massaging that goes on of income when you're an AFL footballer. So um, I may have paid for the East-West link by myself at some stage. <laughs> but, but I think that, that point I only bring up, one, because it's funny to talk about, but two, it's, it, it, it's, it's a thing that I think the, the general public misses when it comes to AFL footballers, and that is that their highest income earning capacity happens between the age of basically, uh, I would say on average, 22 and 27, let's say. And yes, there's the, you know, Patrick Dangerfields of the world and the Buddy Franklins who have probably made, you know, tens of millions of dollars over the course of their career because they've played so long and they've been superstars for a long, long time. For most players, you know, well, the average player is a three and a half year contract. Two years of those first three years, um, three and a half years, sorry, is on a rookie deal that could be anywhere worth from 50 grand up to, you know, well, my first contract was $69,000 a year. And whilst that is good money for an 18 year old, and it's certainly not something that I'm saying, oh, well, you know, I'm, you know, woe be me. It's also, you know, at the cost of me basically giving myself a career that can last a lifetime. Mm-hmm. And, and my fear is that if you really look across the board, how many players, and this, again, will sound strange to the general public. How many players come out of the game of AFL football in a worse position than they would have if they didn't follow that path? And there is a significant number. I don't know what the percentage is, but it's not 10% and it's not 90, but it's somewhere in the, it's somewhere in there, uh, in, in the middle there. And I think that's why, for me, it was so important at that age that I got to at 23 to go, if I hang on for two years and don't have my heart in it, which I didn't anymore, and not to mention, you know, when I do look back, sometimes I'm like, oh, well, could I have done something different? And then I remember that my back was just broken. Um, it was really important at 23 to not hang on, ruin the relationships that I had because they would have. They would have all turned sour if they knew that I was earning all that money and wasn't, you know, giving it my all. Mm. Or 
do I actually go, I want to make sure that the best years of my life aren't at 21 because that was the very real situation that I could have found myself in. And that's the, the genuine concern I have for so many ex-AFL footballers is they give themselves no options because they don't have the time to build those options out. And they walk out of AFL football, let's not say having earned a million dollars over five years. Fantastic money. Not enough money to last a lifetime. Probably not enough money to last the next 12 to 18 months. And so where do they go from there? They chase football in the bush leagues or they you know, do what they've always known. They stay in the system if they're lucky enough. If they're not lucky, they end up, you know, doing construction work because that's the only thing they're qualified for, which breaks their already broken bodies and their cycle sort of continues. Now, many AFL footballers work it out. I'm not saying they don't, but this is a very real sort of demographic that the AFL and the Players Association need to continue to support because, you know, they gave a lot for uh, of their lives to the game. Um, they were custodians of the game for a period, and I think that the game owes them, in some sense, a debt of gratitude to uh, to look after them long term. Uh, long term. Uh, long term. What What are the things? Whether it's in the AFL or not, um, but I mean, in your story, I'd like to hear about. It. I mean, uh, mental health in the workplace, and then providing options for someone. What was the AFL doing? I mean, not not just around mental health, but also career progression after the game. Is there a significant program the AFL has in place to help? Uh, the people that are in the organization? Yeah, so that we do have some allocation of time, but it's very inflexible. Um, so you get, you know, sort of a, I think it's like four hours a week where you can study, but I don't know about your experiences at university, pre- presuming you both went there. I don't know how much you're supposed to accomplish in four hours. Um, hence why I ended up having to do night school and block mode. And, and that was a, not an option um, as an actual study, um, like, uh, function or process until right at the end of my career. So um, I did that at Vic Uni and that was tremendously helpful to me. Um, but again, I'm like for nine hours a week, I'm not, not at dinner. <laughs> I'm doing assignments. Um, you know, I'm having to do these intensive units to sort of last four weeks with four assignments and an exam. It's, it's a heavy workload and that's obviously not taking into account the emotional rollercoaster that AFL football is. So um, that's one allocation. We do get um, some. We do get some funding to pay for our study, which I think is a great initiative. Um, so that's about three thousand bucks a year or something like that. So it sort of pays for maybe one unit, mm. two at a stretch. Um, and then I would say the other thing, you know, we do get access to Psychologist Network, which is the best thing that they have available um, from my perspective, and that's pre and post career. Uh, and also, they there are there is a, a financial function um, where we do have a retirement scheme that pays out a, a certain dividend based on um, you know how many years you played and, and when you played. But it's not a thousand, it's not a hundred grand a year. It's not enough to live off. It's barely enough to pay for your groceries. So, um, and I don't uh, and I'm sort of in a position at the moment where I don't have access based on this scheme. And we won't go into all of that yeah. detail, but. Um, there's there's some of the me- mechanisms that mm. that have um, that have in place, but like let's talk about accounting, right? Like at the moment, accounting is going through the biggest talent shortage they've ever had, right? There's more more work, less people, and and, and less ability to get the the capacity constraints underway. And so, what I said yeah, in a post that I did after having spoken at Pitcher Partners in Melbourne or at their Melbourne office uh, on World Mental Health Day was. You know, the thing that struck me when I left football, I never thought I'd work with accountants, by the way. I didn't know exactly who I'd work with, but working with the accounting industry was certainly not on the top of my list. But funnily enough, what I found was that the types of individuals that are actually, particularly at the sort of the mid-tiers or 
you know, at these sort of ambitious firms like yours, Chase, they're actually not that dissimilar in personality type to at least my friends who I grew up with mm-hmm. or, you know, in another sense, some of the footballers that I played with. Not all of the footballers. I mean, we had quite a swath of people that, that joined the league and, and met many different people from many different walks of life. But essentially one of them, uh, their sort of, I'd say, personality traits that I see is they're very service-oriented people. They understand the fact that, you know, if someone says, we need you to do this, they go, okay. It's sort of just like a service-oriented nature. And in football, um, if the old saying is basically, yeah, if, if they go, you go. Like, you have to go. There's no choice. Um, and that's, you know, just part of being a, an elite sports person, but it's part of also being part of a team. And then there's also this other thing where they're, they're ambitious. Um, many of them, many of them want to accomplish things. And there's almost like a natural hierarchical thing where you can climb the corporate ladder, particularly in those mid tiers and, and the big four. But that is, you know, one challenging aspect. But when you overlay that with the fact that, you know, your industry is so seasonal in its workload, there's just a natural proclivity for, you know, these two things to basically meet at some stage and it for all to become too much. Mm-hmm. And I think that story is one that since, you know, working again in the industry or with or adjacent to the industry, I've heard hundreds and hundreds of times already, which is, we got to the point where there was just never a reprieve. Hmm. There was never a, a pressure release valve. We just kept going and going and going and going. And that's when, you know, that's when bad things happen because we feel like we don't have a choice. And, you know, you call it burnout or, or call it having a, a breakdown or whatever you want to call it. That's the same thing as the, what I went through. And that was your life is filled with a thousand things and, over time, if one thing is big enough to suck enough of your energy, you get rid of things over the course of time until all that's left is your work. And that doesn't make you a better partner at home. It doesn't make you a better person. It doesn't make you more interesting. It just makes you more productive until you reach the maximum capacity of what time you have to offer. And then where are you going to go from there? And that's exactly what I went down in regards to what I focused on with my football and eventually ran out of steam and, and found myself in a really, really difficult position. And, um, you know, I think that's the, the great challenge of not only your industry, but the great challenge that young people more broadly are facing today. Yeah, brilliantly said, Tom. It's um, I've seen that for many, many years. And in the 90s, it was just about pushing through. Didn't matter. Just keep going, keep going. And I'm sure people tough really... Tough times sp- make tough people, Marty. Didn't you know that? <laughs> yeah, you get tougher, don't you, until the... Uh, yeah, until it all falls apart. And, um, yeah, many people in my generation have certainly been through that. The one thing I'm really excited about the younger generation, we have a lot of people in their mid to early 20s, even in the, the office now, is they're putting a priority on their wellness. And the other thing is they're resourcing themselves well as well, even with support staff. They're doing extracurricular work. They're going on holidays. You know, people 20 years ago would just build up, you know, 20 weeks of holidays. Like they just wouldn't wouldn't go on a break. But I'm seeing that there's much more of a priority now on living a good life and work as a component of that rather than being all of it. And it's um, so I'm really happy to see that shift. Um, you know, just just in the environments that I'm seeing, I, I think that's that that's a very positive way forward. So, and that's why these yeah. conversations are important. Yeah, and I, look, I, I certainly think. Look, I have my criticisms of all industries and of myself, mind you. 
But we are heading in the right direction. I think the challenge at the moment is that whilst I agree with what you're saying in, in a sense, and I think that in some businesses that's certainly evident, I think in a lot of businesses it's just window dressing. And, yeah. you know, you asked me about the support that's available at the AFL level. Um, there is support and there's a lot of people there to help you. But there's only so much they can do given how difficult a job that it is. Now, you can say, particularly if AFL football, is you sign, this is what you signed up for. And I agree with that. You know, I don't think it's fair or nice or you know, easy, but it's, it is something that I signed up for. I wanted to be the number one draft pick. I wanted to earn good money and I wanted to play on the big stage in front of the most amount of people. And that's what I did. But it was also my choice at the end to go, I didn't want that anymore and I want to walk away. I don't feel, and by the way, I had the financial means to do that. I had the space and time to make decisions slower than most people do. I feel like at the moment that in the accounting industry, there is a lot of marketing that goes on behind the scenes or that is constructed behind the scenes at the very least. Um, and then projected into the public that we are doing what we need to do to fix um the issues of mental health and well-being in our community and our industry. Do you call it surface level? Well, I, I think, Jace, it's it, the, the core problem remains the same. Hmm. And the core problem is that the, the measure of value, at least at this moment in time, of any individual accountant is how much time they put on their timesheet. And that's got nothing to do with the value that they're delivering. That has hmm. to do with the minutes in the day. And if you have a problem that is impossible or you have a process that is impossible to scale then you are always going to run into the bottleneck of, well, there's just not enough time and there's more work. And in every single business that I've spoken to in terms of accounting, for some reason or another, focuses on revenue growth as opposed to profit growth, which is an interesting concept as my father was a construction um, company owner or a commercial um, electrician owner who was all, he, all they cared about was profit. They realized that once they hit a certain sort of maximum velocity or maximum volume, I should say, of people, they earned the same money but had more problems. So anyway, that was a, a bit of an aside, but as long as the sort of the function of an industry is how much time can I put on a sheet and legal is just as bad or worse, there will always be this problem that exists, which is burnout, overwork, capacity issues, because there's just simply never going to be enough people to do the work that's available. And I think, you know, this whole conversation about the advisor of the future, your time is not just time, your time is value and putting the number of what that value is, is the great challenge I think that faces your industry today. And I'm eager to see what that looks like as it, as it transpires over the next um, few years. But I certainly think that not only will it earn you more money and make businesses more profitable, but I also think that it will make people's lives better. And I think that's really where I'm coming at it from. Tom, from, from your understanding, how do we start to reimagine this in business given what you've learned? What's some of the things that you've picked up over, over the journey recently that you feel like we can, we can actually reimagine this for success in the future? I'll, I'll give you From one example. Which is, yeah, sure. So I'll give you one really simple example. I've spoken to many mid-tiers um, over the course of the last whatever period of time it is that I've been working um, with Everperform. And, you know, I ask them how they recruit their graduates. And they say, you know, I like to look for, you know, critical thinkers, confident people, not arrogant, uh, good communicators, um, people who are, you know, interesting, work well with others. Great. That's exactly who you should be recruiting. What do you promote people based on? 
how many billable hours they put on their timesheets. So the disconnect between how they're bringing people in and what they value internally from a REM and promotion point of view is completely at odds with each other. If I was recruiting for a football team and I went in there and I recruited 20 of me, if you could find 26 foot seven people, we would be the worst team in the league every single year because we wouldn't be able to keep up with the nimble athletes, the big distance runners, the fast, like we just wouldn't be able to compete. So why, I suppose, my question perhaps back to you is that the, the culture in, in accounting, and again, it changes from size and shape, and I understand that, but just as a, as a sort of a concept, why, why recruit based on a characteristic set and then promote based on a financial set? It doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Instead of going, we need our doers and we need our leaders. Let's recruit some leaders, get them up to speed. They, they only need to be 35% or 40% of the accountant as the doers, but they need to be able to manage people at scale. That's for me, makes so much sense. Um, but again, I'm not an accountant. I don't work in these businesses. And perhaps the two of you could shed some light on why that wouldn't be the case. Yeah, I think I think you make a great point because the intrinsic value of people, uh, even in the integration, uh, can add so much more than just numbers, right? But you do, you do technically, you will, you know, historically, you'd look at your top six performers and very much try to get behavioural traits from those types of operators in order to recruit. So you hit the nail yep. on the head. And there's lots of there's lots of various different, I guess, integrations and even cultural mixes and, and lots of different elements that, that actually make a business great. And it's um, yep. and, and and it is. It, it's about reimagining it all. Yeah. 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 So in my role at Everperform, um, and again, this is why at Everform we measure broadly speaking, not just their timesheet data, but also who they are as people and how they're thinking and feeling. And we can benchmark by, you know, the, the, the ranking of a manager is not how much work they turn out. It's it's how much work one, their team turns out, but how happy their team members are, like, or how, you know, capable they are of looking after their team and keeping their team in the same position and growing their people. Like a manager in my mind should be a leader, not a, you know, a facilitator of workflow per se. But in my role, for instance, at Everperform, I look after a product that, that in terms of the people who are reporting to me, I have a product manager, I have our senior technical lead, and I have a data guru who all reporting to me. I know nothing about any of their jobs. I couldn't do it to save myself. If you ask me to write a line of code, I might just write code on a sheet and just say, here you go. This is the best attempt that I have. But that's not my job. My job is not to understand the deep understanding of the you know, the fantastic and, you know, particularly academically required work that they do. It's to help them be better than they were yesterday and to help them with the things that I am much better at perhaps than they are. And I'm learning as much from them as they are from me. But again, it's not my job to go in there and try and crank out their, you know, do the work for them, which is, again, a typical accountant sort of position. If it's not getting done perfectly, I'm going to go do it myself, which, again, comes back to the scale of time issue. But again, my role is to, to help them manage their lives in a sense, and it's help them manage their work, and it's to help them perhaps improve in the capabilities that they need to as people to plan out where they want to be you know next month next year it's to help them look at problems differently it's to help manage personalities that's my role 
that's part of my role at Everperform. And I think that is a fundamentally different proposition than what most managers or people leaders, we call them at Everperform, um, would say that their job is in an accounting firm. You, Tom, you're a passionate guy. It sounds like you found purpose in, in what you do, um, you know, to have fulfilling work that you want to get out of bed every day and go to. How important is that as a conversation with, with employees, whether it's accounting, finance with Marty or, or any industry where people are listening, you know, to, to have passion and purpose in the work you do and do something fulfilling and, and whether those conversations are something that need to be brought more into the workplace and how that's actually tied potentially into the mental health of, of people that we're employing? Yeah, it's a, it's a tough question. It's like it's not a problem we can fix wholly ever, I don't think. There's always going to be, going to be crappy work. Like that's just mm. part of doing stuff. Like why, if it was all fun, why would you pay anyone to do it is basically the concept, right? Um, but the, the, the reason I get out of bed, there, there's two reasons. You either love what you do or you love the people that you do it with. Mm. Um, and I think that the second piece is probably the one that we can attack more proactively. Loving the work you do will always be an interesting proposition, again, to fix. But we can certainly create environments that are more conducive to people enjoying the environment they're in. You know, And that's been the big sort of ESG and sort of office fit out, which you know, that all sort of went by the wayside because everyone started working from home. But that was obviously a big push that many businesses were going down prior to COVID. Um, and now it's more about, you know, one of the great challenges that we're facing as a business and as every business is how do we create a team, not a group of individuals who work in a business, a team, because we're not together. And, um, you know, there's technology solutions, obviously Everform is one of them that gives you the sense of how they're thinking, feeling and performing, but that's not the same as creating a culture that can um, provide people with a platform to go, I'm not just going to do what I need to do. I'm going to go above and beyond for the people that are sitting next to me because I care about them and I want to do it and I believe in what we're doing. And I think, you know, again, I, I know we're referring back to accounting a lot, but, you know, doing the tax return is not fun. I wouldn't imagine seeing the outcome for a client that means that they can build their business, employ more people, um, do what they're passionate about. Sometimes it's sort of this, um, you know, secondhand enjoyment or fulfillment that can drive the passion behind um, the roles that you do. And not everyone is as lucky as I am who can sort of pick and choose and do multiple roles at the same time and, and cross pollinate work and be diversified and, you know, write a book, but at the same time, go and speak in front of a thousand people and work in a technology company and manage stuff. Like not everyone gets that. And I understand that. Um, but there's certainly work that can be done to make this overall cultural piece at the forefront of the conversation. And, you know, again, culture has been hijacked by every guru under the sun over the last 10 years. But what, what it means to me is it's 80% the people that you recruit. It's 80% the people that are in the building and it's the 20% is what the leaders are responsible for in terms of creating an environment that is, um, you know, one, conducive to success, but two is where people understand the story of what they're doing. They understand the why behind what they're doing and they understand the people that they're working with and what makes them tick. And all of that stuff generally falls by the wayside when the work's too busy and that's when, you know, what indicates from any research that you see they're the moments when you should double down on that stuff. Um, because again, if you want people to work at 120% when you need them, you need to be able to give them the chance um, to work at 80% when they need a recharge. Tom, how's becoming a parent um, 
shifted perspective for you, if any. But what what have been uh, the changes for yourself? I think uh, uh, I know my own thoughts on it with Charlie, but uh, Amani, what uh, what uh, what's changed since then, if anything? <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, things change every week. Um, I certainly haven't got it all figured out. I mean, two nights ago, we, we moved her out of our bedroom. So that's where we're at. She's six months old. This is a big thing. So solids have just come into our life and the, the d- disaster that happens out the other end. Just <laughs> waiting for it. I, um, I, I think the thing that I um, probably surprised me about um, – fatherhood was that you know everyone goes in and we can get into the fact that there are some really bad dads who go out there and give you terrible advice about like your life's over and all that rubbish and thankfully i'm quite a strong personality so everyone who gave me that sort of advice i just abused back and just said shut up mate you love your kids i've seen you with them don't try and you know scare an uh, impending father um, but the thing that I probably surprised me most was that life didn't change as much as I thought in the very early stages. I mean, my role really became much more service oriented to Anna as opposed to to your Armani, particularly when she, you know, in the first couple of months, it's like I, I figured everything would be different. But like I had, I got up, I went to work, I came home, you know, I cooked dinner, cleaned the house, walked the dog, like a lot of that stuff, that which you know perhaps Anna would have been able to have more time for previously, she didn't. Um, and, you know, in the very early stages, it's, you know, and look, you've been through it, Marty. It's super tough on the girls. Like the the first few weeks, um, you know, get acclimatizing to breastfeeding if, if um, your partner's doing that, acclimatizing to the sleep and the, the crying, like it's tough. It's really tough on them. Um, and so your job is really to support them as much as humanly possible and help them get through it. Um, but as she as she grows, as she becomes more interactive, you know, my responsibilities are shifting. Um, they're still not, you know, 90% me or even close to 50% me, but they're getting closer every day. Um, and I'm really looking forward to uh, to the point where, you know, and it can go away for a few days and I can just look after my child. But um, we're not quite there yet, but we are moving in that direction. And I just think that, you know, I'm a... Uh, I'm a fast-moving person. I, I love doing a thousand things, and I think with Jason, that's probably why we've connected so well. Because you know, I always want to do fifty things at once, and having to really just focus on one thing that is genuinely like this is a lifetime project is a different proposition than anything I've ever done before. And and it's certainly not something I've mastered yet. I'm I'm still working on it, but having the patience just to to work through that um, that process. Time and time and time again, every day, every moment of every day is something that, you know, I think will really transform me as a person over the course of the next five to 10 to 15 years. Is there a moment so far with Armani where, like, in the, in this six months, is there a moment you can pinpoint where you looked at Armani and just went, fuck, like, this, this is it, this is unreal? Like, every day, every day, mm-hmm. mate, it's crazy. Like, once they start smiling, mm-hmm. um, you know, you can have the worst, worst day. But when they actually just look at you and give you this big, goofy, cheeky smile, it just, like, you just forget about everything else. And it might, it might last a minute, but it's something. Like you, you, and it's very difficult. Like, if you don't have children, it's very difficult to find that reprieve, that one just, like, this is the moment where nothing else matters. So, um, yeah, all the time is, uh, is the answer. And, and then I suppose, you know, less regularly is the um, – 
is the incremental change. Oh, now she can roll into her stomach. Now she can roll into her back. Now she can, you know, pick up a spoon and, and put some solids in her mouth. Or now she's, you know, at the stage, Marty, I'm sure you remember this one, where they just, they just want to throw everything. Everything's mm. just not important. Like put it in front of them. It's like they used to like the book. They'd be like, oh, this is awesome. And now it's just like grab the book, put it in their mouth for like one second and just throw it off. Just, this is not important. So like all of these little sort of transitory moments are, are really interesting. And, and, you know, when people say, um, you know, kids grow up so fast, I think that's what they're referring to. And the, the best piece of advice that I got given um, by one of my groomsmen for the upcoming wedding and, and someone I've known for my entire life was whatever has happening, good, bad, or indifferent, it's all going to change in a week. So all you got to deal with is one week at a time. And uh, yeah, given the footy cliche being one week at a time, it resonated pretty well with me and certainly something I'm trying to hold on to when things are, are more challenging. Certainly connected me. I resonate with those early days and, and to now. Like, I mean, Charlie's now nine years of age. And like you said, you have those moments of, of you know, accomplishment through their own curiosities that you foster. And um, you just see the smile, like something so simple. But last night we were working on a marine project and we were learning about mud flaps I had no idea about mud flaps right but it was it was but just the joy of seeing him actually find that information out and share that with me and having a moment um yeah it, it's it's the joy in my day that 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 connectedness never released that that's always there forever now and um yeah, yeah. like you said I, I you take me back to the first six months where really it is supporting your wife and partner the best you can um but yeah I, I still remember the first block being put on another block and seeing the yeah. look on his face as a nine-month-old and going, "This is this is what it's all about, right?" And yeah. uh, and you and you reconnect to yourself at a deeper level, I'm sure, going through their their growth patterns and and uh, you appreciate, you know, your your own self at a deeper level, even though you're transcending with them. So it's um it's a it's a wonderful wonderful experience. Um, yeah. yeah, and the other thing is, Marty, like, my dad wasn't around a lot when I was a kid. Um, you know, he came from Faulkner. He, you know, he didn't have a, a, anything to really show for from a financial point of view. He travelled around the world through his 20s um, and then had me when I think he was 35. Um, and and by not around, it wasn't that he, you know, wasn't, you know, a great dad. It was this that he was working so bloody hard to build something for us that, you know, he'd come home and have afternoon tea after working commercial construction all day um, and then he'd disappear again and go do domestic jobs, you know, around the, the Ringwood area. So, um, you know, for the vast majority of, of my probably up until my I was 10 or something and sports started really kicking in, which he owned and, you know, got the amount of times we argued about him always <laughs> for, the, for the, the younger listeners listening that used to be that maps used to be in a book um, <laughs> and uh, and we'd always have to try and find these obscure football grounds or basketball stadiums across the state given how much sport I was playing um, so I, I'm really cognizant of the fact that you know one of the great things about flexible working is you know when things have been more difficult and six weeks ago Armani basically just stopped sleeping so that was that but I've been able to be at home a little bit more here and there, chop out for 20 minutes during the day, you know, and, and at Everperform, we're very big on, um, you know, getting the outcome, certainly, but 
finding a way to, to, to facilitate all the different personalities and challenges that individuals face as people, which I don't think is something that has existed in business forever. I know it hasn't. Um, but I'm really, really keen on making sure that I'll, I can be there. I can be around a lot more. And, and that's, you know, in part, luckily, um, you know, due to the fact that I earned a whole heap of money when I was young um, and got ahead of the curve, I suppose you could say. But um, it's also going to be need to be a cognizant decision that I make um, to say no to some things. And that's hard for me. You know, saying no to, you know, to work and particularly work that I'm passionate about is really, really difficult. Um, and it's something that I've had to sort of find a balance over the last couple of years anyway, given the fact that, you know, Every charity wants you to work with them, every, you know, school or social group or community foundation or whatever it is. And you do have to be choosy about the ones that you work with and hence why, you know, I've basically sort of narrowed it down to working with Lifeline and the, you know, the WorkSafe team that I work with and also um, the Western Bulldogs Community Foundation because I feel like those three are the ones that I connect with most and, and for the vast majority of the other ones I have to sort of push back and say I don't have the time. Um which again is very typical well, for me. Well, he wants to do it's everything so well said, Tom. And, and like I said, my uh, mum and grandparents grew up in James Street, Faulkner, so I resonate with uh, that that uh, that area. Uh, but even yesterday, it's it's like time is something. The quality of time uh, with your children, you just can't replace. I resonate with dad working so hard, and like I said, great dad, but just worked his butt off because that's what you did to put a roof over your kid's head. But uh, like there was a moment yesterday that I had, I went to Grandparents' Day where there were three generations, my dad, Charlie and myself, and I was fortunate enough to be in a workplace that allowed me to have that experience and dad's not that well at the moment. And I go, we not only had uh, incredible moments in the day, but Charlie and I will have incredible moments in the future on that day. You just can't, if I had of worked that morning, that would never exist and uh you, you, those those moments in time and your time with your special loved ones are really important to put put time into. So yeah, that's well said. Yeah. And you still want to be productive in the time you're spending in those other areas of life as well. So it's it's yeah. a really good point. It's a great challenge, mate. And and at the end of the day, like you know, one of the things that was really difficult talking to my father about my mental health challenges was, you know, his perspective was, you know, I stick it stick it out keep going, push, 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 eventually it'll break and it'll, it'll, it'll turn out okay. And I, the thing that I had to sort of get dad's head around is it worked for you it, it, and it, you've done fantastically well for yourself. You build a business, um, you know, that had 250 guys working for, like this is like it was a big business and he's done incredibly well for himself, um, particularly given where he started. But the question I posed to him was how many of your mates are in the same position that you are and he goes one of them and i think this is the same equation that businesses at large and in professional service in particular fail to recognize is if you have a business of you know the ratio of individual employees to a partner let's say is 10 or 12 or whatever it is how many people did you crunch and burn out and you know crush along the way that could have been a huge value add but didn't fit into your perfect pipeline and hierarchy that could be a value add to the business and cost you 30 grand on the way in plus their salaries and another 30 grand on the way out trying to get recruiters and replace their productivity. How many of them over the years and how much money is associated with that? And 
that I think is a question that is not has not been answered, and people won't want to answer because it'll be a number that's just like incredulous. But mm. um, that's what I I, I pose to people is like, isn't the result that's best for the business um, the culmination of what's essentially best for the individual's career? Most of the time, those two are aligned. Yes, you'll have individuals who go out and do their own thing. Yes, there will be people who drop off, life changes. I understand all of that. But if the the function of the business is to just funnel people based on who can survive, and I think that's probably more prevalent in legal than it is per se in accounting, then you are by definition losing people that could be a positive um, uh, impact on your people, but also a positive impact on your balance sheet at the end of the day. Well, Tom, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on today. I know uh, we've had lots of long conversations before and we could keep this conversation going for hours if we had the uh, time on our hands today, uh, but we don't. So, mate, huge thank you for coming on. Uh, I'll probably ask you, what, what's your key takeaway? If we, our listeners can take something away today, you know, your journey, your book, uh, Resilience, what's a parting message you'd like to leave our listeners with? Uh, you don't have to do everything on your own and you don't know everything. Uh, we all think that we've got it all figured out or, well, actually, we think everyone else has got it figured out and then we try and, you know, extrapolate that into our own lives. But the biggest thing that I didn't do was access, one, support, but two, the shared wisdom of the individuals around me when I was young. Um, and that was based on a variety of factors. But at the end of the day, um, you know, there are people and communities and, and so many people that will, will help you if you reach out and ask. Uh, and I just encourage you all to explore and experiment with what works best for you, not only from a work point of view, which is where we spend most of our time talking, but also from a life point of view, given that you know we, we don't uh, live to work, we, uh, we work to live. Thank you, Tom Boyd. What, a, what an incredible episode. And usually at this point, I say game over, but this time I'm going to say game on, that uh, there's a new way of operating in the world. And Tom's given us insight into that from his perspective, uh, but it resonated with me and I'm sure a lot of our listeners as well. So thank you, my friend. It was great. Thank you.